0: So up to this point in Matthew's gospel, the lively and unrelenting pace maintained by Jesus during his earthly ministry must have been absolutely and supremely exhausting. In his efforts to preach the gospel, the message of repentance, the message of the kingdom to the nation of Israel, Jesus, during his earthly ministry, left no stone unturned. Whether it was the number of times that he encountered and contested with angry, combative, and hostile scribes and Pharisees who leveled against him the most ludicrous of charges in their efforts to halt his rapidly expanding popularity and influence among the crowds who were coming to him to seek healing and external benefits... These same scribes and Pharisees would go so far as to say to those crowds that this man, this Jesus, he drives out demons by the power of the prince of demons. In other words, he, they made the claim that Jesus was in league with Satan himself. An absolutely ludicrous claim. Other times, like we see, for example, in Matthew 15, verse 1, you've got the team of scribes and Pharisees that come to Jesus from Jerusalem. And Jesus then focused on rebuking and correcting them, because they also came seeking to discredit him in front of the crowds by pointing out to everybody and critiquing in front of everybody the the disciples who violated the tradition of the elders in not ceremonially washing their hands before they ate. And so while they were directly criticizing the disciples, they were also indirectly criticizing Jesus as if to say, what kind of rabbi wouldn't tell his disciples to follow the tradition of the elders and wash their hands before they eat? But in their attempts to paint him as one who didn't care for these extra-biblical rules and extra-biblical traditions that were of such primary importance to them, Jesus turned it back on them and revealed, yes, you are right. I don't care about these traditions because they're extra biblical and they're just flat out wrong. And along with these persistent engagements with the religious leaders, Jesus also spent frequent amounts of time, long periods of time, teaching massive, pe- massive-sized crowds and healing. Tremendous numbers of people who came to him. And he did this over and over and over again. At least three or four times you will see in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus actually stops for a while as people bring their sick and their hurting to him and he heals all of them. And he spends long hours teaching them also. Jesus routinely spent what seems like full days, according to Matthew, teaching and healing Tremendous crowds. And then even more, when Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth, he found himself rejected by the very people that lived there in his hometown. Now, I don't know about you, but when I go home, I love the recuperation and the rest and the recharging that happens for me when I go home. And I can sit on the couch or read a book or do whatever. It's a very restful time. Imagine being Jesus and going home and finding that his home is yet another place where he is rejected. How tiresome it must have been to have no place to call home. And Jesus made this clear in his ministry right back in Matthew 8.20 when he said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And you add to all of that, all of this movement and rebuking and people trying to criticize him and the healings and the teaching, add to all of that, he had just received news of John the Baptist's death. And he had also now heard that the wicked King Herod had taken notice of his ministry. And you could see why, with all of these pressures, Jesus, who is truly human, attempted, to take a, attempted on a few occasions to withdraw by himself for a period of rest to find a breather, or to take a breather. However, these times of trying to find rest, they never seemed to yield the results that He was looking for, did they? Because Christ's fame had spread so far and so wide that whenever a crowd heard that Jesus was in a certain place, everybody rushed to where He was. They followed Him on foot from town to town to town to town, bringing sick, and Jesus, the always compassionate Jesus, would spend all day healing them, all day teaching them. He would spend all day feeding the hunger of massive throngs of people, at least 5,000 with bread. And during that time, the people began agitating amongst themselves whether to take Jesus by force and coronate him king of Israel. And then he sent the disciples away to the other side of the sea. He dismissed the crowds and he went up on a mountain. But he didn't sleep on the mountain. He didn't take time to rest. He prayed all night long to his heavenly Father while watching the disciples as they struggled to reach the other side of the sea in the midst of a terrible storm. And after Jesus walked out to them on the water, out to the disciples in the middle of the night and calmed the storm, they came to the land of Gennesaret. Gennesaret. Where once again, 14.35 tells us, the men of that place recognized him and they sent around to all that region and brought to him the people who were sick. So, once again, in our text this morning, Jesus sought rest and went away from that region because there really wasn't anywhere within the historic borders of Israel where Jesus could actually find rest. And so, in our text this morning, he does something very surprising. It's the first and the only time that Matthew tells us that Jesus did this. Look at it in verse 21. He withdrew into Gentile territory, the territories of Tyre and Sidon. And it would make sense, given all that's come before it, that Jesus would go to Tyre and Sidon to rest. And Mark makes it clear. Jesus, upon arriving in Tyre and Sidon, According to Mark 7.24, he entered a house and didn't want anyone to know. However, even in these Gentile regions, the reputation of Christ preceded him. And as Mark, as Mark told us next in 7.24, yet he could not be hidden. Rest seemed to be the goal. But as the story unfolds, Jesus also withdrew to this place in order to express something. In order to teach us and his disciples something, he came here to express in practice what he had just taught the crowds and the disciples. That externals are not what defile and disqualify people in the sight of the Lord, but it's the state of one's heart before God that determines either their righteousness before him, their acceptance by him, or their rebellion against him. And so as he enters into the land of Tyre and Sidon, into these Gentile regions, it didn't take long, as you see in verse 22, before a Canaanite woman from that region came out to see Jesus. You see it, right? Now Matthew uses a very specific word here, a word that Mark doesn't use. Mark is writing to a different audience, and the term that Matthew uses here would not have carried as much weight and baggage, as the word Matthew chooses to use here. In Mark, we hear that the woman who comes to Jesus is a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. But look look at the word Matthew chooses to use. A Canaanite woman. A Canaanite woman from that region came out. And Matthew chooses this word because he wants to evoke in his Jewish audience a sense of revolt. This is, a Canaanite woman is the epitome of unclean and defiled. The Canaanites were the historic enemies of Israel. However, by the times of Jesus, the Canaanites were no longer a distinct people group as they were in the Old Testament. This woman wasn't a Canaanite in the Old Testament sense of the word, but she lived in the historic regions of Canaan and was herself a descendant of Canaanites. And so Matthew here, in using the title Canaanite, reminds his Jewish audience of the long and the complicated history of Israel and Canaan. These ancient enemies of the Israelite people. And what's more, notice that it's to Tyre and Sidon that he goes and where this woman meets him. The Canaanites from Tyre and Sidon in the Old Testament were a particularly troublesome group to Israel as they bothered and as they harassed the Israelites. They fought against Israel in the Old Testament and at times they even oppressed Israel. We read, for example, in Judges ten twelve, when the Lord declared to Israel during the times of the judges, He said this, The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. You hear that? The Sidonians. But the worst trouble that was brought upon the Israelites by the Canaanites in Tyre and Sidon was the export of their gods to Israel. Over and over again, the Israelites turned from the Lord to worship the Canaanite god Baal. And it was this idolatry exported from regions like Tyre and Sidon that eventually led the Lord to exacting upon Israel the curses of the covenant. You remember the covenant that He set out for them in Deuteronomy 11. Listen to to it. This is the Lord speaking to Israel. If you will indeed obey My commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart, And with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them." Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain. And the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord your God is giving you. So the word is clear here, right? Israel, if you obey and you love the Lord, Lord, His blessings will overflow to you. His abundant blessings will supply you as you live in the land and you will live in the land with full bellies and fertile ground. But to disobey and to turn after other gods will incur the wrath of God upon you, will bring about the curses of God. They will fall upon Israel. And the inhabitants of Tyre and Sidon time and time again attracted Israel to serving their gods. Which ultimately led to the curses of the covenant being brought upon Israel, and they perished quickly off the good land. Now, if you go back into Israel's history, you realize that these regions of Tyre and Sidon were not supposed to remain to be such a thorn in Israel's side. These tribes persisted because the tribe of Asher, tasked with driving them out of the land, failed to drive them out of the land. We read it in Judges. Asher did not drive the inhabitants of Acho, or the inhabitants of Sidon, Sidon, or of Elab, or of Akzib, or of Helba, or of Aphek, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. It was Asher's disobedience to the command of the Lord to drive out the inhabitants of Tyre and Sidon that led to grave consequences for the nation of Israel. For example, Solomon, he turned away from the Lord. Why? The text tells us because he loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. And these women led Solomon to turn his heart toward or after other gods. 1 Kings 11.5 makes it clear just which gods he turned himself to. 1 Kings 11.5, Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. Solomon's idolatry brought about a declaration from the Lord that the kingdom would be torn from him and given to one of his servants. Because of his idolatry. And at Solomon's death, the kingdom was indeed torn in two. But not only that, later on in Israel's history, Ahab was coronated king. One of the most wicked kings in Israel's history. And Ahab married a woman named Jezebel. And her, under her influence, Ahab encouraged idolatry throughout all the nation of Israel. And where do you think Jezebel was from? 1 Kings 16.3 tells us that Ahab took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Baal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Do you see the seriousness with which the Lord takes idolatry? He drove Israel out of the promised land because of it. And idolatry is still the gravest and most wicked of sins that we could commit. Whether it takes the form of actually participating in pagan ceremonies or crafting for yourself statues and altars to other gods, or whether it takes the Romans 1 form of idolizing yourself over and against, over and against God and His Word, you do not repeat the mistakes of Israel. You, serve the Lord and love Him with all of your heart. You, be careful to not turn aside in the least, but you, remain fixated on and careful to observe the will of God, the command of God, and to love your God. See the penalties for idolatry all through the Old Testament. If you go back to Israel at this point, the current state of Israel during the days of Christ as a nation subject to Roman rule can be traced almost directly back to Israel's yielding and submission to Canaanite influence. And so, the Jews in Jesus' day not only despised the Canaanites of yesterday, but they also despised any Gentile with even the slightest overlap with Canaan. And so as Jesus comes to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and a Canaanite woman approaches him, a woman who in the eyes of any normal Israelite is unclean, a totally defiled and despicable person, because she herself most likely had worshipped false pagan gods, She sprung from a people characterized by wickedness. This Canaanite woman was for Israel the poster child for external uncleanness. And much like the Israelites, Christians today, right? we, We sometimes get caught up in this as well. We sometimes act very much like these Israelites who have in our mind a poster child for external uncleanness. Could be someone with a different politic as you. Could be someone who smells bad. Who knows? I don't know what it is. Could be someone that you just don't like the way they look. And you judge them as unclean by their externals. That's the, an Israelite practice. Whoever you relate to as an Israelite would have related to a Canaanite. There are times when we look at those people, right? You don't want to go anywhere near those people. And I don't know who it is for you. I don't know who you would consider the defiled around you. But as we will see, as Jesus makes clear, over and over and over again, it is not the externals that defile, but the state of one's heart before God. And this Canaanite woman right here she will be afforded the opportunity by Jesus to reveal the state of her heart as one who both recognizes Jesus as Lord and as Messiah. She will be afforded the opportunity to reveal great faith in Jesus. And she is only one of two people in Matthew's Gospel whose faith is commended with such wonderful flying colors by Jesus. And so you see, This woman came to Jesus in verse 22 and she was crying. You see that? She was crying. And the word there means she kept shouting out. She kept crying out to Jesus as she followed him. And what is it that she kept crying out? Verse 23 Have mercy on me. Her plea to Jesus was one of compassion. It would seem that she had heard the reports of this compassionate Jewish rabbi and now she hoped that he would, as he had done with so many before her, show her pity. Help her. And as she cried out to Jesus, look, she identified Him as Lord. And that might on its own simply be a term of respect, but she coupled it with this recognition that Jesus is also the Son of David. Lord, Son of David. That term is a term loaded with messianic weight. This woman, at the outset, reveals herself a Gentile with some degree of familiarity with the God of Israel. And it could be that she was one who's been walking around with the crowds, following Jesus, observing Jesus, seeing His miracles, listening to His Word, and now, sure of His identity, decided it's time to come out from the crowds and petition Him for help. And this woman approached Jesus with such respect. See, and as she approaches Jesus, the reader, we, are meant to see the contrast. The Jews to whom and among whom Jesus ministers either reject Jesus outright, bicker with him, or follow him around simply to get stuff until he challenges them or he rebukes them and those same crowds go home. Contrast that with this woman who shows more real faith in Christ than anyone in the nation of Israel. Like the Gentile centurion in Matthew chapter 8 about whom Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Two Gentiles with faith that impressed Jesus. And this Canaanite woman came asking Jesus for a specific request to heal her severely demon-oppressed daughter. Her daughter was cruelly and horribly demon-possessed. That's what that word there means, severely. Also, it means cruelly and horribly. And so this woman kept crying out to Jesus for mercy and help. But notice, Jesus does does something that he never does with anyone else. As she keeps calling out to him for help, verse 23 tells us he did not answer her a word. And this is a marked departure from the usual custom of Christ. If you read Matthew's Gospel, if you've been tracking along, when somebody comes to Jesus for help, His usual practice is to stop and show compassion on them. But this time, silence. And Jesus kept walking without saying a word. And the woman kept shouting for a response to her urgent plea. And you can imagine the scene. As she follows Jesus and repeatedly yells out, Please help me! My daughter needs your help! Have compassion on me! Have pity on me! Over and over again. Jesus doesn't answer her a word. Now this might seem callous and insensitive on the part of Christ, but by His silence, by His not saying a word in response, by His treating her as though she's not even there, She is given the opportunity to reveal her faith. you got to know that had this been any other Pharisee, had this been any scribe in Israel, they would have quite quickly told her to get lost. And they probably would have added a few insults for good measure. But Jesus didn't do any of that. He simply remained silent as she repeatedly cried out to him for help. And notice the disciples, right? As she keeps shouting, they get irritated by the woman. And they try to make Jesus send her away. Look at verse 23. His disciples came and begged Him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. Meaning, she's following us around and she's crying everywhere we go. The disciples seem to mistake Christ's silence as ignoring her because He didn't want to be bothered by this Gentile. So they ple- the disciples now begin pleading with him again and again. So you got the woman yelling, and now you got the disciples pleading with Jesus over and over again as well. Jesus, send this unclean Gentile woman away so that we can go find a place to rest. We don't want all this attention being drawn to us. And she's a Canaanite! And Jesus answered, in verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So now notice what Jesus didn't do. He didn't do what the disciples were asking Him to do. The disciples wanted Him to send her away, but He didn't send her away. But instead, He clarified His mission to them with an earshot of her. I was, only, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And Jesus has been quite consistent about this. We see back in Matthew chapter 10, when He sent the disciples out on mission, He sent them with the same parameters and focus saying to them go nowhere among the gentiles enter no town of the samaritans but rather but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of israel and at, and proclaim as you go saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand the lost sheep of the house of israel now some have wondered about this that christ would limit his missionary work to the jews alone but it actually fits with the rest of Scripture. Because as we study Matthew's Gospel, it becomes quite clear that the mission to the Gentiles, bringing the Gospel to the Gentiles, is anticipated by the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see it in chapter 8, verse 11, for example. When Jesus had healed the Roman centurion's servant, He said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And again, in 10.18, Jesus prepared the disciples for the consequences of obeying his mission to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. One of those consequences would be, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So Christ is anticipating the mission to the Gentiles, but for now, during his earthly ministry, the focus is clear and limited. The Jewish peoples, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, are given priority. They are given the first hearing and offering of the gospel. And we read this. This is the practice of the Apostle Paul. We read it in his letters and and, and note it in his life and ministry. For example, in his letter to the Romans, he begins in chapter 1, verse 16, saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And again, in Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes, God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first, also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first, also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. And Paul in his life and in his practice, even though he was apostle to the Gentiles, made it a habit to minister according to this focus on Jewish priority, or to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Whenever Paul broke gospel ground in a new city, he began first by searching for the synagogues in that city and proclaiming Jesus there first. For example, in Acts chapter 9, verses 19 and 20, we read, For some days Paul was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. And when Paul sailed to Cyprus, Acts 13 tells us that he first proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. When Paul reached Corinth for the first time, he started by reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, according to Acts chapter 18, verse 4. And when he left Corinth, he arrived and arrived in Ephesus, he began again by entering the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning with the Jews and persuading them about the kingdom of God. It was only after the Jewish peoples had heard the gospel in a city that Paul would then continue on to the Gentiles. Great effort and labor and ministry took place among the Jews first, and they were, according to Paul, or for Paul in his, in his life and ministry, the first field that he addressed when he brought the gospel to new regions. Paul said as much when ministering in Antioch as we read in Acts chapter 13, verses 42 to 46. As Paul and Barnabas went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So the Jewish peoples were given first priority, They were given the first offer of the kingdom. And this was the mission that the Father sent His Son into the world to accomplish, to call Israel to repentance and return to the Lord. But here in Matthew 15, He is now in Gentile territory, And you will see that Jesus will do some ministry work in this territory, but he will avoid any prolonged missionary work in these regions in favor of ministering to and among the Israelites, in favor and in keeping with to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, this might sound harsh to us, but biblically speaking, it was this ministry of Christ and the apostles to the Jews that paved the way for blessings to the Gentiles. Because... By their rejection, Paul said in Romans 11, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Israel as a whole rejected the call to repentance, and their failure to take hold of the kingdom offered to them meant riches to the Gentiles as we turn to Christ and as we lay hold of the blessings of relationship with Him and eternal life with Him. And one day, when the nation of Israel does return to Jesus in repentance, and faith, the blessings that will flood the whole world will be spectacular. But here, as Jesus physically ministered on earth for these 30 years, these three years, his focus and priority was clear: preaching the good news of the kingdom to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now put yourself in the, in the shoes of this Canaanite woman for a second. She could have heard these words and simply walked away offended angry and dejected well fine if he's not here for me what am i fine i'm out of here then but she didn't she didn't get offended she didn't get dejected look at what she did verse 25 tells us that she drew nearer to jesus she heard the words of christ and she drew nearer to him saying it says in verse 25 she came and knelt before him saying lord help me this is true worship to cast oneself so fully and completely at Christ's feet, recognizing that we are absolutely helpless, recognizing that He and He alone is the source of and foundation for hope and life and salvation and healing. These are truly appropriate words from the mouth of this Gentile woman to speak to Christ. And this woman, she throws herself at his feet, not seeking status, not seeking riches, not seeking anything else. She knelt before him because she knew what we should know. He is her only help. He is your only help. See, we live in a world filled with pseudo-helps. We live in a world selling you false hope over and over. This is one of Satan's strategies, his relentless strategies, to turn our eyes away from hope itself in the person of Jesus Christ and to look upon the false hopes of the world, thinking that somehow, some way, they can produce in us delight and happiness. To look to money, to look to voting booths, to look to control and controlling our lives and everything in them. To look to anything as a source of hope other than Jesus is a wicked sin. This woman, however, she gets it. She understands. She sees there's only one hope. It's this man right in front of me, this Lord, this Son of David, this Jesus. He is the only hope. But once again, she kneels before him and she cries out to him, saying, Lord, help me. But again, she meets with what looks like a cold response from Jesus, doesn't she? When he says in verse 26, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I want you to imagine some pastor saying something like this to a person today. This would lead to great offense as the person who had been called a dog would most likely run and hit up Facebook and Twitter and whatever other social media platform they could and say, I go to Winona Gospel Church and the pastor called me a dog. And everybody would get mad and CBC would pick it up and whoever else would pick it up and it would cause a firestorm. But not this woman. Not this woman. She accepts it as true. She understood and she accepted the difficult truth that Christ had just said to her. She could have immediately responded with offense. She could have said, how how dare you say something like that to me? She could have thought highly of herself and huffed in anger and stormed off. But then, think about it. What would that have gotten her? What would her offense have? and her anger, and her storming off, or her passive-aggressive response, or so anything like that, what would that have gained for her? Nothing. Less than nothing. No, this woman recognized her situation and her position. She was indeed a Canaanite woman. She recognized the history of the people she descended from. She knew the, the writings of the Old Testament and knew that the Lord had clearly pronounced them wicked and for that reason the Lord called on Israel to drive them out of the land. I would it be more like this woman to possess a true and accurate assessment of who we actually are before God? And I think we can learn a lot from her Because there is absolutely no way to take the words of Jesus here and turn them into something nice. These are not nice words. Jesus revealed to this woman a difficult truth. There is no way to tell someone that they are a dog and have it sound nice. I'm not going to try. But there's just no way to do it. Jesus here was not sensitive to the feelings of this woman. Which in our day is kind of the worst sin anyone can commit, right? To hurt another person's feelings. In many ways, our feelings have become more important than the truth itself. And there is probably no greater revelation of our self-love and self-idolatry than our proneness to ignoring truth if it hurts our feelings. That we would prioritize our feelings over the truth. It's a revealing just of how highly we view ourselves. Imagine if this woman had thought that way if this woman had said, you hurt my feelings, Jesus, I don't care what you said, she would have walked away and never have received the blessing that she is about to receive. And I believe that such a realization would help pretty much every single one of us in our relationship issues with one another. If we just recognized that our feelings aren't the be-all and the end-all, that our opinions aren't the be-all and end-all, if we recognize just who we were before God, we are this Canaanite woman. We are the dogs who don't deserve the goodness of Jesus. This woman had no claim on Jesus, neither did we. This woman had no reason to expect his compassion. This woman is owed nothing, and she spoke as a woman with no sense of entitlement, as should we. The belief that you or I are greater, smarter, or more deserving of anything than those around us leads us to arrogance. And far too often we can begin acting more like the Pharisees of Jesus' day who thought they were all that, that they were so much better than everyone around them, that everyone should listen to what they had to say because I'm so much smarter and I'm so much more spiritual than those around them, which led them to treating people terribly. Terribly. The Pharisees aren't painted very well in the New Testament, are they? God hates such a disposition. This is why He repeatedly commanded Israel in the Old Testament to remember. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. In other words, always remember you didn't deserve to be saved out of Egypt. And if it wasn't for me, taking pity on you and showing compassion to you and being faithful to promises that I made of my own accord to your forefathers, you'd still be slaves in Egypt. But I, the Lord, saved you. I delivered you. I redeemed you. Not because you're special. Not because you're greater than anyone else. Because you weren't. I saved you simply because I had compassion on you. And in like manner, you, as the people of God, must always remember that without me, you'd be enslaved, darkened in heart and mind. Always remember that. Always remember that you were a slave in Egypt. And when you meet people who are right now slaves in Egypt, treat them with compassion. Keep from getting yourself too high and lofty in your own mind because the reality is you aren't great. I'm not great. But you know who is great? Jesus is great and he deserves all the honor. So are you one who thinks really highly of yourself? Who values their feelings over truth or who prioritizes feelings over truth? Are you one who who requires constant affirming and flattery from those around you or else you walk away upset? Does your acceptance of rebuke and biblical truth depend on the tone of those who speak it to you? What would you have done if you were this woman standing here before Jesus and he had just likened you to a dog? Offense would have issued in missing the blessing, but humility and acceptance took hold of it. That's what Jesus said to the woman. He called her a dog. Now, he's speaking to a Gentile woman, and there were differences between the way Jews viewed dogs and the way Gentiles viewed dogs. For a Jew, dogs were filthy and mangy animals, but here in Gentile territory, territory, as he speaks to this woman, he is referring to the domesticated dogs that people keep as pets. But it doesn't matter. A dog is a dog is a dog, and it's not a nice thing to call somebody, right? Right? And so Jesus said here, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And he was here illustrating God's plan for her. Now I want you to imagine the scene. This is the scene that Jesus is painting. A family is seated at the table for dinner, ready to eat the food that is provided for the family by the head of the household while the dogs rest underneath the table. And Israel in this scene is illustrated by the children who get first crack at the choicest food on the table. And the woman who is asking Jesus for help here is illustrated by the dog under the table, not yet eligible for the delicacies of the table until those have been first offered to the children. Because no good parent will take food out of the children's mouths to feed the dogs under the table. Dogs are not treated as children meaning it's not appropriate yet to dispense the blessings reserved for Israel to those who are not Israelites. However, implicit in the illustration is the fact that both are indeed parts of the household. And this is what the woman picks up on. Child and dogs are both a part of the house and are both at the master's table. And she answers accordingly in verse 27, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Again, had this woman been proud, had she felt entitled, had she possessed a, self, a sense of self-importance, that would have been revealed in her response to Jesus. But see this woman, she recognizes the truth. No, I don't deserve the bread. It's not my time or my turn for the bread. I get it. I'm not a child. But we must realize that no one deserves the bread. No one even deserves the crumbs that fall off the table. But look, she accepts the designation that Christ Christ applies to her. She understands that she is like a house dog, second in line to the children. And in her humility and faith, she turns what on the outside might seem to be a cause for despair and insult into a reason for blessing. Blessing. As if to say, I might very well be, it might very well be that I am a mere house dog and not a child. And if that's the case, I know this to be true. No good master of a house lets his dogs starve to death. No, they allow the dogs to eat the food that falls from the children's table. Because the the crumbs that fall from Israel's table contain blessings for the whole world. And we've witnessed this throughout the Old Testament. We've seen the blessings of Israel fall to Gentiles and outsiders like Rahab the prostitute and Naaman the Syrian and Ruth the Moabite. You can imagine this woman saying, Now please, I'm not asking for Israel's bread. I'm simply asking for the crumbs they leave behind. Those will be enough for me. Again, this is a woman who truly knows that only Jesus can help her. She is a woman humble enough to recognize her condition and her status. And this is one of the most important steps to truly turning to Christ. Recognizing that we are nothing, that we are undeserving, that we are wretched, that we are sinful, that we are hopeless apart from Him. And now how does Christ respond to this woman's statement? Look at verse 28. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Now, this term woman here, at this time, it's a term of respect. Like ma'am or madam or something like that, right? It's a term of respect. All through Scripture, the Lord has brought His people into situations that while difficult and oftentimes quite painful like for this Canaanite woman who endured his silence while she desperately petitioned him for aid, these burdensome and heavy situations, we must recognize these burdensome and heavy situations are given to us by God as an opportunity for us to reveal and grow our faith. Just like it was for this Canaanite woman. This was an opportunity for her to reveal the state of her heart, the reality of her heart to grow faith, to refine faith, to strengthen faith as she looked to and as we look to in the midst of those trials and difficulties and hardships to the Lord in dependence. Because you know when things are going rough in your life, it drives you ever closer to the Lord, doesn't it? It drives you with increased fervor and dedication to prayer, to kneeling before Him, to devotion to Him. And so you see this Canaanite woman who keeps crying out and kneeling before Jesus, so too do we in our seasons of hardship more zealously approach Jesus. And in the end, recognize that these seasons of hardship, like it did for this Canaanite woman, produce a greater outcome. They produce growth in our endurance, growth in our hope. More growth and more endurance than had, than had Jesus just simply answered the prayer immediately. To linger in the season produces endurance and, and strengthens your faith. There's a reason in the Old Testament that the Lord brought ten plagues upon Egypt even though he could have destroyed the nation with one. There is a reason the Lord waited until Abraham and Sarah were really, really old before he gave, blessed them with Isaac, the child of promise. There is a reason why when the Lord Jesus Christ heard about the death death of Lazarus that he waited where he was for an extra two days. The waiting and the difficulty and the increased dedication to the Lord increased the faith of everyone involved. So what is it right now for you? What are you crying out to God for that He does not seem to be listening to you or answering you? What is it that you are kneeling before Him saying, Lord, help me, and it's like He's not saying anything at all to you. Do you think that He's leaving you in this season of hardship because He doesn't care about you? Of course not. He loves His people. He is for you. If you are one of His children, He is for you. And so you and I, you must, I must, we must always remember that in seasons that demand great faith, great endurance, great dependence upon the Lord, remember that God is overseeing all of it because He has a plan in all of it for the increase of your faith. And in the end, while going through these times of hardship, it is painful, it is, it is tough, there's a lot of struggle. In the end, all of those struggles and, and trials are a great thing. And this being the case, that growth in Christ is promoted by our trials and our difficulties, if that's the truth, which it is according to Scripture, then we can be like Paul and instead of getting really Burdened and weighed down by our difficulties, we can boast in our weaknesses, like the Apostle Paul said, because when you are weak, God is strong. And always remember, according to Hebrews 12, that for the moment, all the discipline and the trial that you face in life seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the fruit of the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Are you being trained? by the hardships that you are enduring right now? Are you growing in faith and in righteousness and in tenacious dedication and devotion to Christ, crying out to Him like this woman, help me, help me, help me, and revealing great faith in the process? See, for this woman, it was her humble tenacity, her hope in Christ that led to this commendation from Jesus. And listen, there are a number of compliments and praises that humans in this world desire. And oftentimes we can be so fickle and self-centered, we can get angry and passive-aggressive when we don't receive the commendations that we think we deserve, as we think we should. But listen to this. This is the only word we ought to concern ourselves with, the commendation of Christ. And the words he speaks to this woman are to be coveted more than all human praise. We leave ourselves behind, we serve Christ, we bow to Christ, we humble ourselves before Christ, we petition Christ, we live for Christ, we trust in Christ, and we live so as to receive that great commendation, Oh, man, Oh, woman, great is your faith. And such a faith is marked by great humility. See, this woman was grouped with dogs, and it didn't faze her at all. She accepted the fact and answered accordingly, Yes, I am a dog. But I know, I know that God's blessings overflow to the dogs as well. This woman understood Christ owed her nothing, but that God in His grace brought her to the table. And not only now that Christ has ascended and is mediating for us, not only now do we eat the crumbs from the table, but the Lord invites us to the table in full. And we are fed with the children's food. Because God is generous. And he freely gives to all who turn to him in faith like this woman did. Not because she deserves anything, not because we deserve anything, but because he is good and he is merciful. And do you see the blessing that he bestowed upon this woman in verse 28? Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So we started this morning by looking at the historic sinfulness of the Canaanites and all of their evil and wicked idolatry and their enticement of Israel to idolatry, their paganism, their wickedness as a nation that led to their being driven from the land of Canaan. We saw that the Israelites hated them and saw that they were defiled and evil and despicable and wicked. And yet, even so, this woman, who to an Israelite represented total defilement, who represented the worst of God's enemies, she revealed a heart that was right before God, filled with faith in God, and was therefore acceptable to God. It's like Jesus said, What you see on the outside, the externals do not defile. It's the state of the heart revealed in our words and in our actions that reveals our righteousness before God. And so we, as we are people on mission going out and we meet with those people or the people we think are defiled, we must always remember that even the worst of God's enemies on earth, even those with a long and marked pedigree of sinfulness, rebellion, and rejection of God, who proceed from lineages that are loaded down by sin, who right now speak sinful things and promote sinful practices, all of them, all of us, can share in the blessings of God by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If it can come about that a Canaanite woman turns to Christ in faith, anyone can. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you have done. If you truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you turn to Him in repentance and faith, if you humble yourself before him, you will be forgiven of your sin and you will be saved and you will be given a seat at the table to enjoy the blessings of God forever. But this morning, if you profess Christ, but act more like the Pharisees, self-entitled, self-important, self-focused, then the call goes out to you. You must repent of so awful and wicked and abomination before the Lord. Realize that you and I are nothing. We deserve nothing. We are no better than anyone else. And throw yourself at the feet of Jesus like this woman did. Look to Jesus. Exhibit the humility that only a child of Christ can exhibit. And I guarantee you this. This is a guarantee. Living humbly for Christ in recognition of our situation as totally dependent on Him is far more joyful and delight-inspiring than being so self-important that we get upset and angry at every perceived or even real slight. Remember one of my favorite Spurgeon stories, one of his, my favorite Charles Spurgeon sermon notes. If you need help responding to people who say bad things about you or who slight you, Spurgeon said that when somebody comes to him and insults him he responds by saying you don't even know the half of it I'm way worse than you think I am but my savior is far greater than I can ever begin to imagine so all is well Father we thank you we praise you we honor you we love you Lord, I don't know all the scenarios and situations and hardships and trials that the people that are your children here are facing, but I pray, Lord, that we would all recognize that whatever it is that you are with us, and there is a point and a plan and a reason that we are enduring such things. And I pray that we would heed your word and be trained by the hardships that we're facing. We would be trained as we increasingly rely on you as our endurance, our spiritual endurance muscles are flexed and they grow ever stronger. Father, I pray that we would, all of our trials would yield in us the peaceful fruit of righteousness that your word tells us they will. I pray that if we are Canaanites in here today who don't know you, who maybe feel like the Lord could never love me, the Lord could never love someone like me. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know all the things. I can't believe I even came to church today. I always thought if I walked into a church, I'd catch on fire or something. I pray that you would help those to realize that you are a good, gracious, and merciful God, and you will receive them with wide open arms if they repent of their sin and trust in you. And I pray for us who do believe in you, who profess faith in you, that you would help us by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would convict us of the times when we act more like the Pharisees than the Canaanite woman. Help us to be humble and to depend on you for everything. We pray all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen.